1: Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.
0: Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up, dissent in modern Russia. We'll be hearing from journalist and activist Sharna Nemtsova and leading academic on authoritarianism Ben Noble about why free speech in the country can come at the very highest of costs. Our host for today's discussion is Polina Ivanova, correspondent for the Financial Times covering Russia and Ukraine. Here's Polina with more.
2: Boris Nemtsov was one of Russia's most eminent politicians in the 1990s. He offered hope for a prosperous, democratic future for Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union. As Deputy Prime Minister under Boris Yeltsin, some believed Nemtsov would one day become president. But in 1999, Yeltsin appointed Vladimir Putin as his successor. Putin has now been in power for over 20 years. Nemtsov dedicated his life to fighting against corruption in the Putin-led system, a career which ended his life. In February 2015, he was fatally shot as he walked across a bridge in central Moscow, a stone's throw from the Kremlin. The Kremlin has repeatedly denied any involvement in Nemtsov's murder. Seven years later, in March 2022, an investigation by Bellingcat, The Insider, and the BBC found that Nemtsov was being tailed for the last year of his life by an FSB agent. The same agent has also been implicated by journalists in the attempted poisoning of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny on a plane in Siberia in August 2020. Navalny, who, like Nemtsov, also dedicates his life to fighting corruption in Russia, spent months recovering, and when he returned to Russia in January 2021, he was arrested immediately in Moscow's Sheremetyevo airport. He remains in jail today. So what does it mean to take on the Kremlin, to oppose Putin? And is it still possible at all, after Putin sent his troops into Ukraine and launched the toughest domestic crackdown on his critics yet? I'm joined by Zhanna Nemtsova, journalist, activist, daughter of Bagus Nemtsov and founder of Boris Nemtsov Foundation for Freedom, and Ben Noble, associate professor of Russian politics at UCL and co-author of Navalny. Welcome to the podcast, Zhanna and Ben.
3: Thank you, Paulina, for having us today.
2: Since Putin launched his invasion of Ukraine in late February, things inside Russia have taken a very dark turn. If the space for free speech and independent journalism for protest and activism had already been gradually shrinking since the start of Putin's rule, it seems it has now almost disappeared. I thought, Ben, maybe I could start by asking you to compare how the picture has changed in Russia, even from a few months ago.
4: I think it's difficult to exaggerate the degree to which the space available for opposition in Russia has shrunk. You rightly pointed out that that space has been shrinking over the last few years, and especially since Navalny returned to Russia at the beginning of 2021. We've just seen an extraordinary acceleration of that shrinkage since Russia invaded Ukraine on the 24th of February this year. So as well as looking at the political opposition, I think we can also think more broadly about critical voices in Russia, whether they be independent journalists or opposition politicians. And so it's difficult to escape the conclusion that the situation is very, very bleak and people on the ground are either remaining quiet in order not to face the consequences of saying these critical things, or they've left the country, or they've already ended up in the law enforcement system in Russia. As we've seen with some notable opposition figures, including Vladimir Karamuza. It's a bleak picture and one that isn't likely to improve in the near future.
2: When the war broke out first, a lot of my opposition minded friends in Russia or, or people that contact in, in Russia who share a kind of liberal political view were sharing videos of Boris Nemtsov. Actually, his speech in 2014, soon after the annexation of Crimea, was all over my Facebook feeds for a while, where Nemtsov was saying that this is an act that is shameful, that is brazen, and speaking in front of a crowd of tens of thousands. Of of people about Russia and Ukraine without Putin. I mean, anti-war slogans, mass protests, powerful speeches by by important opposition leaders. I mean, Zhanna, can you imagine a situation like that today in
3: this moment? The short answer to your question is no. To elaborate on what you've just said, I should admit my father was among few ones who was against the annexation of Crimea, even among liberally minded politicians. So it was very high on his agenda. And uh, you've been talking about uh, this massive protest in Russia in Moscow. It happened in March 2014. It attracted more than 50,000 people, and they protested against the annexation of Crimea and the subsequent war in East Ukraine. So uh, my father was a political visionary, and he understood earlier that Putin means war and crisis. And of course, I'm not surprised that his videos are going viral right now. He's regarded in Russia and beyond Russia as a political prophet who read Putin very early and understood where he was leading our country. For now, I think uh, it's not appropriate to speak about Russian opposition as it doesn't exist. Opposition exists in a different environment, in a democratic society, in a country with a democratic system. We do not have any democratic system, any legal political competition. We should speak about dissenting voices. So there are a lot of dissenting voices in Russia, those who reach out to really big audiences, and among them are different people, politicians, activists, journalists. So lots of them fled Russia. Some of them still stay in Russia, but lots of them fled Russia, and lots of them are at a loss as what to do next. So the situation is... Very, very bad. And I think the major concern is about the state of the Russian society.
2: Yes, absolutely. And um, I think the exodus is a very important thing to think about both in terms of Russian society, but also in terms of the impact on dissenting voices who have left for fear of the risks that they face. What happens to Russia with that voting block gone, with that, with those voices out of the country? I mean, Ben, do you think that has a big impact on domestic politics? Can we see that that as another big shift?
4: Well, carrying on the point that Jana made, it's difficult to even talk about politics in Russia right now, insofar as politics is about debate, it's about conflicts, it's about compromise. We're in a system now in the country where it's I think the word totalitarian makes sense to apply to the political system. And that means precisely the exclusion of different voices, of dissenting voices. And so the fact that lots of these figures have left the country means that we have a very sterile environment in the country, a political environment because it's the Kremlin. uh, It's the Kremlin's desire to completely get rid of those voices. And I think we can see now for those individuals who haven't, for example, been detained, arrested, put in prison, that the Kremlin wants those remaining individuals to leave the country. And that seems to be a clear preference. If these individuals are out of the country, then they're not going to get in the way of the Kremlin, for example, when it comes to elections, when it comes to trying to map protests. that's one of the worrying developments that these individuals leaving the country, they're leaving because things are very difficult for them. They, of course, don't want to live in an oppressive totalitarian society. But on the other hand, it means that the Kremlin is is winning in that regard, but they really in the long term won't win because a society that's based on fear of coercion and excluding voices isn't going to flourish, we're not going to have a society that is going to be stable in in the long term. And I think that is consistent with comparative social science research on those types of political regimes that increasingly rely on coercion. It might give them short-term control, but in the long term, it opens them up to lots and lots of threats to their continued survival. The Kremlin claims that there is an opposition. And as political scientists, as academics, we often refer to the opposition in Russia, with two terms, the systemic opposition and the non-systemic opposition. The non-systemic opposition consists of those groups that challenge the political system, that aren't on board with the Kremlin, that try and raise their voices to to change the society. Whereas the systemic opposition, they're co-opted by the Kremlin. They include parties like the Communist Party that are really willing to support the Kremlin to do things and occasionally they can say things that are quote unquote, opposition critical. And going forward, what's interesting is that within the Communist Party, there are a few voices that are flirting with the boundary between the systemic and the non-systemic, including in the region, some younger people who are wanting to push back against this idea that the Communist Party is being co-opted by the Kremlin. And so I think if we are going to use the terms of opposition and we're thinking about the space left for opposition, we're in this maybe weird situation where we're looking within the Communist Party to these voices challenging the leadership. But we shouldn't get, of course, too carried away. These are individuals who are within the systemic opposition who are then a party that's co-opted by the Kremlin. And it's tricky to you know talk about them in the same voice as the people who've demonstrated extraordinary bravery by saying much more forthright things, challenging the Kremlin in a much more direct way. That being said, I think if we are looking for politics and opposition within Russia, even if it's small, going forward, we need to look at the communist party and we know that the Kremlin is also looking at the communist party and it's why we've seen steps taken against some of those more radical voices within that party.
3: Uh, may, May I interrupt you, Ben? I have to object to one of your remarks. Uh, this term, non-systemic opposition, was coined by the Kremlin to marginalize those groups who were not under uh, control of the Kremlin. So do not confuse people. Opposition is opposition. <laughs> it doesn't matter whether it's systemic or non-systemic. People just don't understand those things. And yes, it's a, it's a, it's a Kremlin narrative. And also, I think that uh, well, uh, you're talking about the Communist Party. I think that Russia actually needs a totally different kind of leadership right now because we are facing very, very profound problems that uh, many people haven't yet acknowledged.
2: There's also, an, if we're talking about types of opposition, there is now also an opposition in exile. So we now have these hubs in the Belisi, in Georgia, in the Baltics, of people affiliated, for example, with the Navalny movement, um, Navalny himself being still in jail. Ben, you've written the book to read on Navalny and his movement. Do you think that it is lying in wait for another political moment? Do you think it has run its course? What is the state of that movement at the moment, it being the one which was in recent years, best able to mobilize people to engage in, as you were saying, real politics in Russia.
4: When Navalny returned to Russia last year, the Kremlin, I think, very quickly showed the lengths that they're willing to go to in order to destroy his team and his movement, which is why we've seen people like Leonid Volkov lead the office in Vilnius, to try and carry on the movement from abroad. But they realized that that isn't ideal. They have spoken previously about the fact that it's a Russian movement meant to be operating in Russia, and so this is very much not the location of their choosing. It's one of the reasons why Navalny returned to Russia at the beginning of 2021. He didn't want to be a Russian politician outside of Russia. He said in order to be effective, in order to lead the movement properly, he had to be in the country. Of course, given the extraordinary crackdown against Team Navalny, against the movement more broadly, they've had to leave. And in fact, Navalny has said to members of the team, to activists and supporters, I do not judge you if you leave the country. There's no point in you all being locked up with me, leave the country, carry on the activities, and then we can take stock from there. But of course, being outside of the country, as well as the various steps being taken by the authorities in Russia to limit the ability of their message to reach Russians in the country, there are clear limits to the extent to which they can shape the narrative. You know, Navalny became Navalny partially because of his extraordinarily successful YouTube videos. And yes, the team Navalny from Vilnius are continuing to put together the anti corruption investigations to put out the videos, but uh, they're constrained in really how influential they can be from outside the country. And only time will tell whether they will be able to continue to carry on that mission of pointing out elite corruption, whether that message can continue to inspire people or whether they might have to change track. Only time will tell. I get the sense that they're still reeling from this extraordinary crackdown against them and against the dissenting voices more broadly in Russia last year and accelerated at the beginning of this year.
3: Well, at this point, it doesn't matter whether you are inside Russia or outside Russia. Since the invasion of Ukraine, the situation has changed dramatically. If you uh, choose to stay in Russia, chances are very high you'll be jailed if you dare to voice any anti-governmental narratives. So it it actually doesn't matter you're in Russia, you're outside Russia. And uh, if before some so-called democratic procedures were staged, so the government and Putin pretended that Russia was a democracy, now there is no any need for them to further pretend that Russia is a flow of democracy. They openly say that they are totalitarian, a quasi-totalitarian state. So why uh, should it be important where you are right now?
4: I certainly wasn't trying to suggest that they could be doing what they were doing previously since the invasion of Ukraine. What The main point that I was making was that this space, small as it was, remaining, at the beginning of last year in 2021, that's completely disappeared. And so they've had to leave the country, but that puts them in a, in a weird situation, precisely for what Shana has said, um, from outside the country, they're going to continue doing the investigations into elite corruption. They're going to continue to put the videos on YouTube, but because of the steps that have been taken by the authorities to try and cleanse the information environment in Russia, to stop those dissenting voices being able to, to speak, they're limited in, in what they can do. With a
2: large proportion of anyone who had ever been involved in politics having to leave or people who were independent journalists or in, opposi- in op- kind of formal opposition groups or movements, many of whom have been forced to leave. And so those who are acting as dissenting voices at the moment, I'm finding them in, for example, the church or in the militarized police force and people who are refusing to go and fight, for example, or, you know, in these very unusual spaces, the space is strong, but it's also shifted. And I wonder whether you've come across any cases like that. And where is the dissent happening now?
3: Well, I don't think that there is a tendency, uh, but uh, it happened in the past, for example, when they were, uh, and Ben, I think, knows about it uh, pretty well, as uh, he uh, wrote a book about Navalny, co-authored a book about Navalny. So uh, when there the were uh, pro-Navalny rallies in Russia, there were some dissenting voices coming from unusual places. Uh, it's it's very natural, but uh, it's not something that can profoundly undermine the system. So we do not have to overestimate it to be overly optimistic about those single cases. But yes, as you do, I, I read the news and I know about some teachers in Russian regions and about those other people. And also from this piece written by Shura Butrin, so one of the findings is that uh, people in Russian regions tend to be more critical towards uh, the central government than people in Moscow. There are a number of reasons for that. First of all, I think that the impact of sanctions for them are harder. And second, if you look at those people who are fighting uh, in Ukraine, I mean, Russian soldiers, those are guys from very poor families from Russian regions. So Moscow uh, is not affected, let, let me put it this way. So, and in those small places, people can feel uh, the dreadful consequences of this senseless war in Ukraine. And that's probably they might be more critical. Of course, I'm not uh, saying that that is the truth, but it might be the case. They Because they they face the reality, they have no choice, they are sons or die in Ukraine.
4: When thinking about these dissident voices that remain in, in Russia, one point I think worth stressing is that the new boundaries about what's acceptable and what is counted as being dissident or oppositional or um, stepping outside of what the kremlin wants that is in flux still because things have changed so quickly yes it's an intensification of an existing trend but i think people are still working out what is acceptable to do what are the uh, acceptable boundaries of how much you can get away with saying in relation to the war in relation to the political system, in relation to the cause of economic problems. And we've seen people find different points to hit. And I imagine that will change going forward. And it could be that as the um, as Russia's war in Ukraine continues and as it sort of becomes more uh, uh, part of the, the broader landscape, that people find those lines and, and and will settle down and challenge them in different ways. But I would point to you know two concrete examples, and it's looking at the Saratov regional legislature. And I'm going to talk about the Communist Party again, unfortunately. I'm not looking at them because I think they're the bravest, definitely not. But I think it's an interesting thing to follow. Two people, Nikolai Bondarenka and Alexander Anidalov, are within the Communist Party. And I think they're victims of the fact that the Kremlin now, they've got rid of the Navalny movement. And so now they're turning to those voices within the system who are, in a sense, going off script. And this is, of course, all in the context of the fact that in September this year, there are going to be local and regional elections. And the Kremlin wants to, I would say, nip in the bud this slightly more off script portion of the Communist Party. Because the Kremlin now, as we mentioned earlier, has just had enough of imitating democracy. They're saying, OK, well, we had maybe this decorative opposition because it would allow us to say to the international community, look, we have a multi-party system. We've got the Communist Party. We have the elder Pierre, just Russia. Uh, but now you really get the sense that within the presidential administration, those people who tried to, quote unquote, manage democracy, they're much less influential than the Siloviki who are saying, well, stuff it. Why don't we just rule by force? Why do we have to imitate something? And so Bundarenka has already been kicked out of the regional legislature, ostensibly for not declaring money that he made from his quite popular YouTube channel. And then Anidalev tried to intervene when in Saratov uh, they changed the name of one of the central streets From Kirov Avenue to Stalipin Avenue, he tried to intervene and he was taken to a police department. It looks as though United Russia are trying to change the rules so that they can also kick him out of the legislature. The fact that those people are taking steps, they are putting themselves in the firing line. And that is one instance of people who are maybe dissenting.
3: Ben, may I disagree with you? Uh, do. You're talking about things happening on a micro level. I do not think that if Russia is led by any member of the Communist Party, we will succeed. The idea is that Russia should uh, undergo really deep reforms. It needs another kind of leadership, another mindset, something very different, because otherwise. Uh, it will be more or less the same. A country lagging behind the whole world, posing an existential threat to its neighbors, etc., etc. So Russia needs democratization and it needs another leadership. That's what I'm talking about. And all those minor things, I think they are not really important right now and they do not suggest anything about the future of our country. So it's a matter of luck, <laughs> only a matter of luck. I I think that we are now witnessing like more or less uh, the final years of Putin, the final years of Putin. So this regime might last for another five years. I don't know. But this is the final part of his uh, rule. And I'm not thinking about what's happening now uh, with those different people. But I'm thinking, does Russia have any future at all? The problem is that when a transformation happened in Russia and everybody was happy in the West, it was not a real transformation. My father was a unique example of a pro-democratic leader in our country. In many other regions who held the senior positions, who were governors and mayors, those people who previously had belonged to the Soviet elite. Who was Yeltsin? He was a real Democrat. I'm
0: not sure. No bullshit leadership, brought to you by Intelligence Square in partnership with Havas Creative, is back for a new season. In this straight talking podcast, Chris Hurst, global CEO of Havas Creative, is joined each week by a leader from the world of business, sport, politics, or culture. We've got some fantastic guests coming up, including the editor of the Financial Times, Rula Kalaf, and entrepreneur Charmadeen Reid. Search No Bullshit Leadership wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode.
2: There's always this conversation within Russian liberal circles, there was always this conversation about compromise and the degree to which you compromise in order to be able to continue to act. Jeanne, more than anyone else, you've experienced the, your family has experienced the dangers and the risks of taking a fully uncompromising uh, stance to opposing the Kremlin. Uh, Can we talk a little bit about the risks that you faced and the decision that you made to leave in 2015 that many people are now making this
3: year? Well, I should speak in strong terms. I despise those policy of compromises. And I have never compromised with the Kremlin. I have never tried even to find any compromises. Since my father's assassination, I made it absolutely clear I will pursue a fair and transparent investigation. And I do not care what Putin on the Kremlin think about my actions or anyone else. So I was regarded as a radical, <laughs> but I didn't want to compromise. And so I decided to leave for two reasons, one of which was that I could not continue my professional career in Russia. It was absolutely obvious for me that I would sooner or later uh, lose my job. I was a stock market commentator and I worked for RBC, which was a privately owned business channel. It was owned by Mikhail Prokhorov, one of the richest men in Russia. But soon after I left, television network changed hands. And now it belongs to a person very loyal to the Kremlin. Anyway, uh, so another, uh, of course, thing is uh, my security. I do not want to put my life in danger. It was not secure to be there. And I got some threats uh, via social media. And unlike many other people, I took them really seriously. And these were two reasons for me to leave and... I do not regret this decision. I
2: mean, we were talking uh, before about whether or not some opposition movements being kind of permitted or uh, cracked down upon, but not to the same degree as we're seeing now previously was a kind of pressure valve that allowed people to express discontent with the system. Now that that does not. But, Paulina, let's look at the,
3: at the outcome right now <laughs> of all those efforts. It's a total disaster.
2: Well, so my, my question would be that, um, you know, do you think, Ben, that, that that poses a risk of fracture in some way? I mean, for example, if uh, the economic shocks of the sanctions continue, if, this, if they escalate, if people start feeling that pressure on their wallets, on their families, will that, in your view, destabilize uh, the system in some way?
4: It's difficult to escape the possibility that if economic conditions in Russia continue to get worse, that Russians will be looking for somebody to blame. At the moment, given the way that the media environment is constructed and dominated by the authorities, currently, the Kremlin is asking Russians, telling Russians to blame the West. They said, okay, there's the special operation taking place in Ukraine, but the real reason why the West is imposing sanctions that are leading to these economic problems is because they've been itching to do it for years. They've been looking for any excuse to impose sanctions in order to cripple the country, in order for the political system to change. And it seems to be, although it's very tricky, there are loads of caveats that we have to add about looking into what most Russians actually think at the moment, but it seems to be at the moment that that media framing is working, at least for a substantial portion of the Russian population. Going forward, though, the Kremlin runs a really serious risk because what happens when economic conditions get dire, get catastrophic, when hundreds of thousands, millions of people lose their jobs, they don't have enough food to eat. How confident can the Kremlin be that their line of, oh, it's the West, blame the West, will continue? Because looking at comparative social science research, we do see moments where the people turn against the leadership. Maybe after an initial rally round the flag effect, where people feel it's their patriotic duty to support the leadership, regardless of, of the nature of, of a conflict or whatever's taking place. And the worrying thing is that it seems that the Kremlin is aware of that. And it's one of the reasons why they've suggested that Moscow is giving more authorities to regional heads, to the governors of the federal subjects in Russia, saying that they can be in control of the response to sanctions. Now, that's not the Kremlin trying to help the situation to say, look, the response to economic conditions has to vary by region. It's so that if things get even worse, the Kremlin can say, oh, well, we're not in control of the response to economic conditions. You need to blame your governor if things get even worse. And this fits a pattern of the Kremlin finding people to blame at every stage. We saw it, for example, at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. Moscow played a similar trick. They said, we're going to give more authorities to the governors. And that was a device to set them up so that they could blame them if things got worse. And so at the moment, it seems to be that the Kremlin is taking steps to stop most Russians turning their blame towards the Kremlin. And maybe if it's not going to be directed towards the West, turning it against regional Leadership. But certainly going forward, it is going to be a worry. That's talking about the people. It's another topic entirely to talk about the elite and the extent to which they're going to be happy to remain on board. But I should say that the elite, members of the elite, groups within the elite, will, of course, be looking at how the population are acting, who they're blaming, and will take their cues regarding if they want to defect from the current system based on what the people are doing. But that seems quite far off at the moment. We just don't know. You know, it's the war has been going on now, at least since the February invasion, for two months. We shouldn't forget that this, of course, has a broader context, which goes back to 2014. So it was always tricky talking about, you know, the invasion. Well, it really began in 2014. But the February invasion is, is what lots of people are referring to now when they use the word invasion. It's only two months old. The sanctions, really, if they're gonna bite, they're gonna bite in the long term. And so there are still lots of question marks regarding how the people in Russia are going to react, who they're gonna blame in the long term, but also how members, groups, factions within the elite, what they're going to do and whether they're going to remain loyal to the Putin leadership.
3: Regarding sanctions, I just want to add one comment. I've been thinking about it. What's what's the impact of, on sanctions? Not on the Russian economy, but on popular perceptions. So I think that the attitudes of many Russians towards the West will not change depending on, uh, on the severity of sanctions. So in 2014 and 2015, those sanctions were pretty mild. Nonetheless, many Russians didn't like the West. Now, those sanctions are much more serious. They are much more meaningful. But those attitudes uh, have not changed. And I think that at some point of time, so now people do not feel the living standards are going down. But Russia is a poor country, I want to say. So not many people are really well off. So they're used to uh, living in poverty. That is not an important thing to understand. So I think that if they uh, if they start to feel that uh, they are getting poor and poor, they will uh, hold the Russian government responsible for that. I'm absolutely sure, not the West. So, but it, it it requires time for them to understand.
4: Of course, the difficult question, Jana, is when. What's your prediction for when they will start oh, to blame?
3: So- I think, uh, well, uh, there are a lot of unknown variables (laughs) in this equation. (laughs) Uh, I think that, so there are two things. The performance of the Russian army in Ukraine is important. And how they will present this performance, I don't know. I think that in one year we will see a lot of changes, uh, but it will not lead to regime change once again. But uh, I think the the Russian government will face some problems and people will realize their life conditions are worse than they used to be like two years ago, something. We started this conversation talking about crackdown
2: in Russia and control of the population and fear and how that's deployed and how the muscle of the state is deployed to control. But there's also, as you were talking about support for this war, that many Russians are choosing to support this war. Jeanne, have you found a gulf in an understanding that grows between you and other people? For example, people talk about finding that they no longer agree with their friends, that they don't understand, that there's a sense that they exist in different realities. Have you experienced this personally?
3: Well, because I'm uh, the co-founder of the Boris Foundation, I've been observing the state of Russian society for many years, and I don't want to talk about my personal experience because I don't think that they are relevant. People around me share more or less the same views and the same values. But that is true, that it's difficult now to conduct any reliable polls in Russia due to many reasons, one of which is, of course, a fear. So Russia, as Ben said, is a totalitarian state and people are afraid of uh, speaking their minds. But I read a great piece written by Shura Butrin. He is, I think, one of the greatest journalists in Russia. His piece was published yesterday on Medusa, the biggest independent media outlet right now. So I hope they will translate it into English. Everybody should read it. Uh, if you can read it in Russia, please do. So what he did, he spoke to random people, it's not a classic poll, right? But he spoke to random people in Moscow, in the province of Kaluga and in the province of Kastroma. The findings of this report are very interesting. First of all, yes, that is true that if you ask a question, if you ask a random person in Russia, do you support the special military operation in Ukraine? You would hear more or less the same answer, yes, with varying degree, varying degrees of certainty. But the problem is much deeper. First of all, the state of our society is disastrous, it's dreadful. People just do not think about anything. So Russian propaganda has done a lot of damage to our society. So many people cannot think, they cannot critically assess any political developments. They think that they can do nothing about anything in Russia. So they disengage from politics. And this kind of behavior has been just. Dis- encouraged by Vladimir Putin for many many years so in their responses they more or less repeat the narratives which are spread by by Russian propaganda like we didn't have any choice uh, we are fighting for peace or we are fighting with Nazis all this I'm sorry bullshit. <laughs> And at the same time, many people understand in Russia that Russia is waging a war against Ukraine, but they don't want to face the reality. They do not want to hold responsibility for what's happening in our country. So it's a very childish behavior, one thing that concerns me. Speaking about myself and others, I think it's a wrong approach to build a wall between lots of Russians and myself. So we are one nation. We don't have any other nation. I'm sorry. I'm Russian. I was born and raised in Russia. Russian is my native language. I am trying hard to do something, not on a a big scale, uh, to... Improve the situation, being the uh, leader of the Borisento Foundation. So, we do not have another population to deal with. We have to deal with this population. And I think that the most important goal for the future leadership of Russia is to change people's mindsets, to explain to them that they are not subjects of the Tsar, but They are citizens and they should be engaged and they should understand why it's important. And of course, they should face the reality. They should understand that what they are now doing in Ukraine is wrong. That violence is not a solution. It has never been a solution. Ben, I mean, has anything jumped out to you that also
2: helps to answer this question of to what extent Russians do support this war at the moment and and why?
4: I mentioned previously that it's really tricky. It's clear that we can't trust the polls that the Kremlin is talking about. When we look at Sihom, which is a Kremlin-aligned polling agency, A state-owned polling agency, they're saying, look at this, extraordinary approval for what's happening in Ukraine, extraordinary approval for uh, President Vladimir Putin's activities. But there are some things we can do as social scientists to try and get rid of what's called social desirability bias. So um, the pressure that some people may feel in a totalitarian political system to give the answer that they feel is expected of them or that will get them into the least amount of trouble rather than what they actually think. But I think Zharna mentioned something that goes much deeper and which is why things are maybe more problematic than some people in the West might imagine. It could be that outside of Russia, people think if only Russians on the evening news were able to see what we're seeing, then immediately they would be against the war and they would withdraw their support from Putin. I'm afraid that's nonsense. And it's nonsense for a variety of reasons, but one of them is because confronting people with this information, there are various reactions to that. It's not simply, oh, I was wrong, the Kremlin's wrong, Putin's wrong, let's get rid of him. It's how do I accommodate this information that doesn't fit with the narrative that is presented by state propaganda? How do I incorporate that in a way that doesn't destroy my life? And I think that is a very, very profound reason why it's going to be very tricky going forward to see how things are going to play out because of the ways in which Russians have been taught to think about their country, have been taught to think about how politics work, have been taught to think about what Putin means. He's not a democratically elected politician. He is the Tsar, as, as Jana mentioned. And so when we think about what would have to change In quote-unquote everyday uh, normal Russians, the the sort of general citizens' mind, in order to challenge uh, the current political system, there are lots and lots of moving parts, lots of things that have been stated year on year on year. And so we shouldn't imagine that there is going to be a coup or a revolution very soon because lots of this has been established, has been set up for many, many years. And it's one of the reasons why some people who look at Russian politics might be surprised that Putin still is leader of the country after so many years, beyond all of the coercion, the repression, the murder of political rivals. There are lots of these other factors that feed into Russian political culture, the understanding, as I say, of, of the country's position in the world. And so it's not just as simple as, uh, as showing them what actually happened, what is actually happening in Ukraine.
2: Zana, when your father was, was looking at what was happening in Maidan, did that speak to him? In, in Ukraine in 2014, I mean, the protests and the subsequent fall of the government in power.
3: Throughout his Political career, he was not indifferent to what uh, was happening in Ukraine. He basically took part in the first Maidan and he supported uh, Viktor Yushchenko and he was an aide on a pro bono basis to Viktor Yushchenko for a couple of months. So he visited Ukraine many, many times and he knew a lot of Ukrainian politicians, for example, uh, the mayor of Kiev, uh, Vitali Klitschko. So they were Basically, not close friends, but they were friends. So my father was not indifferent. He always wanted Ukraine to succeed. And of course, he was shocked when he learned that Putin had annexated Crimea. And an interesting fact that he was in jail when Crimea was annexated. He was sentenced to a 10-day prison term. It was a minor offense. It was, of course, made up once again. And I came to visit him and I asked him, how are you? And he said, oh, you know, everybody has already forgotten about me because of the annexation of Crimea. So when he did that and when Putin launched Waged the War in East Ukraine, he was preoccupied with those developments, with those decisions. But the reality was back then that this Patriotic euphoria was so widespread in Russia that I can recall really well because I was in Russia back then. The vast majority of people, literally, 90-something percent supported Putin's decision to annexate Crimea, which I was like shocked. I I didn't know what to do, why they were so short sighted. So I could not explain those things. And my father lost a lot of his popularity, even among those people who basically shared his democratic values. People just like this idea to get something for nothing. And I think that Putin and his inner circle miscalculated something. Then they decided to invade uh, Ukraine. They underestimated the amount of resistance inside the country. And of course, they underestimated Vladimir Zelensky. They did not acknowledge him as a true courageous leader. So they were wrong. They thought it would take three days to occupy the whole country. And I think that people during the first days of of the invasion, people shared more or less the same. And now they just cannot embrace the idea that they're about to lose in this war. And I think as a patriot of Russia, that uh, Russia should be defeated in this war. And it will give good ground for uh, reflections about our role in the world, our power in the world, and about many, many other things. But once again, the bottom line is that we should think about our society. And if somebody is willing to become a leader of Russia, I don't know who this person will be, he or she should we think about changing this popular mindset of Russians. That's the main problem, because Putin understands his people perfectly well but he doesn't want to change it. He is profiting from that. He is taking advantage of it. Thank
2: you, Janna and Ben. That was Zhanna Nimtsova and Ben Noble. Ben's book, Navalny, is now available from Hearst. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. I've been Polina Ivanova.
1: Thank you for listening. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket.